have a letter I'd like to read to you. It's from Dr. George Richardson. Dear Pastor Brian Kenner and congregation, we are grateful for the opportunity to be part of your church 25th anniversary service. The service was charged with the presence of God and his anointing. Every part of the service was refreshing, encouraging, and uplifting to our heart. We especially enjoyed the music ministry. It was inspirational and uplifting. It was also wonderful to see how the Lord has blessed Sweet Communion Baptist Church, resulting in its various ministries, as well as its spiritual and numerical growth. To God be the glory. Give each member our thanks for the rich fellowship we had with them. May each of you continue to press on in the great work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Praise God. He, um, he also says, we are grateful for your outpouring of love and generosity towards us. We pledge that we will keep in touch and we will keep the ministry in our thoughts and prayers always. We further pledge that we will visit occasionally, especially when we need to be spiritually recharged. <laughs> so that's a personal note to, to each of us and just thanking God for um, the opportunity we had to celebrate 25 years of ministry here and thank God for the service that we had and the powerful message. And I pray that that message is not soon forgotten by us, that we're challenged to do more and more. We're challenged to, he talked about hospitality, talked about four H's. I don't know if you can remember them. All four H's, you remember? Well, I won't test you now. We'll talk about that this evening. But uh, in his First Thessalonians chapter 4 passage, he encouraged us that we are doing well, but to do more and more, to not to lose our zeal and passion for getting the gospel out. So I'm so encouraged uh, by the message uh, that, that we had through him and for our service and for each one of you as you participated in the service and more importantly as you participated in this ministry in the past uh, 25 years of service. And it's just uh, encouraging to see what God is doing and want to encourage you to continue on in what God uh, has started here. Our scripture reading this morning is found in our passage in Hosea, Hosea chapter 9. So I'll ask you to turn there with me. And when you turn there, let's all stand together. <coughs> Let me read for your hearing this morning, Hosea chapter 9. Rejoice not, O Israel. Exult not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall, be, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like mourner's bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled. For their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they are going away from destruction. But Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their precious things of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God, yet a fowler's snare is on all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit of the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable 
like the thing they loved. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird's. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow. But Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. God give us understanding in his word this morning as we read through it, as we preach through it, as we meditate on it. May he give us good understanding and challenge our hearts as we receive his word this morning. Let's take time to pray this morning and after prayer, our choir will come with a selection and then the preaching of God's word for this morning. Father, we stand in awe of you as we look at your judgment on Israel through your word this morning. What are we to think? How are we to ponder? What are we to reflect? What should we see? How should we respond? Guide our hearts today as we look at your word. Give us insight into your word and insight into the response that you would have us to have as a result of your word. We thank you for your grace that gives warning in your word so that many may see the seriousness and the consequences of sin and turn from it and turn to you. We thank you for the years of ministry you've given us to give out your gospel, a gospel of warning, a gospel of grace a gospel of hope, a gospel of challenge, a gospel that points to our only hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to that gospel, to live it out in our own lives, to worship together in spirit and in truth as we gather here to hear your word and the fellowship. Bless our gathering here, Lord. May you use it to focus our hearts towards you so that our lives will reflect um, your glory and your promises. Take your truth among your people today, Lord. May it, may it lead us and guide us, inspire and give us hope and challenge and encourage us and lift us up and do every ministry that you would have your word to do. And so we thank you for um, the time that you've given us here, we pray, Lord, that we will continue to work and to serve you. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. If you were to ask a person there is sin in the world, most people would say yes. And in fact, if you were to ask us here today if our world was full of sin, most of us would say yes. If we were to ask if our city, Milwaukee, was filled with sin, we would probably say yes. But here's the problem. 
When we start bringing it closer to home, if we ask if there's sin in my life, that's a little bit harder for us to see and detect. We would probably say yes, but then if we ask what sin is there in your life, we say, well, you know, it's, it's a little bit there. My feet get a little dirty now and then. We don't, we're not high on specifics when it comes to ourselves and our sin. What's my point? The Word of God helps us to see our sin clearly and its consequences, its devastating consequences. Because it is so easy for us to look over our own sin. Jesus said, you know, before you look at someone else's sin, before you look at the speck that's in their eye, get the huge telephone pole out of your own eye first. And that's what Jesus was saying, is that we so easily see the little in others, but we don't see our own sin. It's hard for us to see our sin ourselves. I should ask you a question. How often do you look at yourself? I mean, not reflectively. I mean, literally. You look at yourself in the morning when you brush your teeth and you comb your hair and you dress your face and you get dressed. Then you leave. Now, unless you're extremely vain. I know some people who take selfies of themselves all day long. Um, but unless you are extremely vain, you tend to look at that mirror and you got it. You get it right and you walk away. So you spend maybe, I don't know, 10 minutes at most in front of that mirror maybe. Maybe a little bit longer. But how long is your day? You don't normally look back. My point is this, we don't look at our, it is hard for us to see ourselves. We need the word of God to help us be that mirror to us. And so when I read a chapter like Hosea 9, it, it, it's hard because I see the judgment of God on his people as he points out their sin. And I'm tempted to say, could it really be that bad? Did it get that bad? And behind that, I'm saying, is God justified in his judgment? I'm like that little child that got a whooping and wondering if he deserved it. Well, the first job of mom and dad is to sit down and tell them why they did not. You know, I believe in whoopings. Not just because that's the way I was raised, is that's the way I see God instructing us. There's a way to do that. And what he does is he sits down with his people and he points out to them. He doesn't just angrily grab a, 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 a belt or something and go wailing on them. He sits down and discusses with them. He's told us through Hosea, he's done that through the prophets and they've rejected it. He sits down and lays out what it is they have done in a clear, methodical way. This is how you have disobeyed me, and this is why you will be punished. Now, whether they listen to that or not, or give ear to it, is their responsibility. But he does lay it out. And here in chapter 9, we see a portion of doing that. And yes, it, it's, it's, it's hard. I remember some of, the, some of the hardest things for me as a child was to, to hear my father tell me why I was about to get punished. I'd be like, let's get it over. Do the thing. Whoop me. But finish this speech, please. <laughs> That was difficult. He wanted me to have a clear understanding of what I had done so that I would come across knowing that it was justified what he was going to do. So he says this, Rejoice not, O Israel. Exult not like the peoples. It's not a time of rejoicing. He gets real clear. You know, one of the things, the beauty of, of the prophets is that they give pictures so that we might see uh, what God is saying. We might bring it down to our life. 
And he does that in this chapter. He, he wants to point out in this whole chapter that sin has its consequences and that God will judge sin. Sin will not go unpunished. And it has its consequences. The consequences of sin will not be avoided. One of the verses that comes to mind as I look at this chapter is Proverbs 14, 34. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. That gets, that relates to us because he's talking about the nation of Israel, but he says the consequences of sin will impact and, and badly affect any people. Not just God's specific people, but any and all people. So he says, this is not a time of rejoicing, O Israel. He says in verse 1, you have played the whore, forsaken your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages. Now, he spends a lot of time in this book talking about those two things because they are vivid pictures. And sometimes we don't want to look at them specifically, but we need to look at them. And he, 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 he they're, they're not pretty pictures. When he says you have played the whore, he's talking about Israel's unfaithfulness, and he's picturing that as an, a, a, a woman who is married, who is committed, who, who's committed in marriage to her husband, but gone away from that committedness, that faithfulness, and has gone outside of that marriage and has profaned that marriage. And so what he's talking about is a sin that is against the relationship, the closest relationship that God has placed on, on mankind, of man to man, a human relationship, the marriage relationship. And so it's ugly, and then he's, he points out that it defiles we don't like to mention that word, especially in church, because it's an ugly picture. It's one of defilement. It's, it's, it pictures uh, uh, a state, you know, so, so often uh, Hollywood and, and TV and videos portray um, people and, and they show them young and they show them attractive and they show them beautiful. Um, but the picture really here is what happens on the other side of their life. When the makeup is off, when they age, when they age a bit, and the, the uh, devastation of that lifestyle begins to take its toll on them physically, they're no longer as attractive as they used to be. And so what he's going to talk about in this chapter is the, the impact and the devastation of it's sin. And so what we would picture is what, what, what pornography shows is this beautiful image of this, this person in the prime of, 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 of their life and their age and their physical beauty. But what it doesn't show is 20, 30, 40 years later what that lifestyle has done to that person and how no one looks at them anymore in an attractive manner. He says, you have loved a prostitute's wage. A prostitute's wage is, is something that um, um, usually has been, you know, uh, we have seen in our society that people are attracted to this sin because they make money of it. And so they hope to make a lot of money. But in reality, what we know is they don't actually make a lot of that money. A lot of that money is, is taken away from them and spent in, 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 in other areas of, of that business that the ones who are, are doing that don't actually benefit from it much. In fact, they take much risk and get very little 
reward. In fact, Homer is is one, or, or is it Gomer who was who was uh, uh, one that was uh, Hosea's wife, and and we can see that she acted like she was rich at first, but she found it later on that those who who had had used her and hired her, had thrown her away, and she stood there rejected with very little to show for. And it's at that time Hosea took her back to himself. And so a prostitute's wage is something that looks good on Front Street. But after a while, we wonder, was it really worth it? And the answer is no, it's not worth it. In our day and age, uh, we often see a drug dealer's wage, and, and a lot of our youth are attracted to the drug dealers in, in our neighborhoods because they seem to, to ride the, the cars, the vehicles that, that have all the, the stuff, the newest stuff, the fastest stuff, the biggest and shiniest wheels and, and all of that stuff. But, but what they need to see is the after picture. The guy in jail doesn't have any of that stuff. His stuff is possessed. I, I, it makes me laugh. I see police. I see police vehicles every once in a while. The police will take a, uh, um, they'll take a, uh, uh, a, a Cadillac SUV that they have repossessed from a drug dealer, and they dress it all up, and they they put the police uh, uh, labels on it, and then and some of them will say this was taken from a drug dealer, and uh, now it's used for police matters. It's kind of funny when you see that. They have repossessed that and, and used it for their own selves. And what they're trying to show you is that crime doesn't pay. And in the long run, it doesn't. It doesn't. And so he's saying, Israel is going after something that's going to be like a prostitute's wage. It's going to seem good on the front end, but they haven't actually uh, 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 looked at what the results are going to be and what the true consequence of that lifestyle is going to be. In fact, in, 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 you know, he, he says it as he goes on in verse 5. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival, on the day of the feast of the Lord? Other places right in this chapter, I can't find the verse now. He talks about that when, 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 when he leaves Israel, they're, they're going to be... hurt. It's in verse 12. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. That's the phrase I was looking for. Woe to them when I depart from them. Not going to be a pretty sight when God leaves his people in their sin and the judgment of sin begins to fall on them. So he's going to show in this chapter the devastating effect that sin has on a people. Let's start off in verse 2. One of the things that's affected is their economy. Their economy. The economy of Israel is affected. Now, you have to understand they were working in, in a farm, an agricultural-type economy. So look at verse 2. Threshing floor and wine that shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. So their economy is going to be greatly affected, and that's going to impact each one of them. He says it this way, that the harvest they get will not feed them. It won't be sufficient. That's amazing to me. We, we live here in the city in an urban environment, but when you drive a little bit out of part from the city, you get into the to the rural area, and you just see miles and miles of, 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 uh, of uh, fields, planting fields, and beginning to plant now, and, and, and you wonder, man, how, who, who can eat all that corn? Who can, who can eat all of that, that, that is harvested there? But the Lord says that's not going to be enough. When you go against the Lord, those things that would be of a benefit to you start to, 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 to not pan out so much. One of the other prophets, in the minor prophets, he says, my people are going to have money, but they're going to put it in pockets full of holes. 
you get the illustration. It's just falling out. They got stuff to put in the pocket, but it just keeps on falling out. And, and that's what happens in God's judgment is that we got money coming in, but it keeps on going out. And we wonder, man, all of this coming in, how come I'm not, I'm not seeing it? I can't quite grab a hold of it. And that's what he's saying. That's one of the consequences here of their sin. New wine will fail them. Huh. That, that, that kind of pictures to me, you know, people are looking for, for uh, uh, they're, they're looking for the buzz and, and it ain't going to be there, you know. It's not going to do for them what they used to do. It reminds me of, of just the whole drug culture is a person that, that they smoke or they take something and they get that first buzz. And then after a while, it's no longer there. They're chasing that for the rest of their life. It doesn't, it doesn't suit. It doesn't fulfill them. Even their land is affected in verse 3. They will not remain in the land. The land was given to them by God as a possession. It was to be with them forever. But it says because of their sin, they're going to be taken out of the land. The things that was theirs is not going to stay. It says in verse 3, they, they'll return to Egypt. In fact, two Two nations are listed there. Ephraim is, is actually Israel. But it says Israel is going to return to Egypt. They shall eat unclean food in Assyria. What does that mean? It says you're going to return to Egypt. They're mindful that Egypt is a place that God had rescued them from. He had taken them. They had been slaves in Egypt, and he had taken them from Egypt. And he says they're going to return back to Egypt. The very thing that enslaved them, the very people that enslaved them, they were going to return to. This is not just a metaphor. This is literal. That the people of Israel were harassed by two great nations. Egypt is one, and Assyria is the other. And I, I said this before, that they had the notion, in fact, we even read the passage in, 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 uh, in Kings, second, in 1 Kings, of how one of the kings of Israel thought he's going to play one side against another. So he made, he made an agreement with Egypt that Egypt would guard them from Assyria. Then he turned around and made an agreement with Assyria that Assyria would guard them from Egypt. And he thought he was really cute. He thought he was really smart in playing both of them. But what, what happened is how foolish he was to do because they both afflicted him. And here in verse 3 it says that, they shall return to Egypt. They shall eat unclean food in Assyria. What does it mean to eat unclean food? Remember in Daniel chapter 1, Daniel depicts a time when Israel had been punished and had been exiled out of the land, not only the northern kingdom, which happened in, in, in uh, uh, 722 B.C., but also the southern kingdom by Daniel's time had been carried out over into Babylon and Daniel was one who was carried off into, into Babylon. And there in Babylon, he made a commitment to the Lord, I'm not going to eat what? The king's feet, food, his meat. He says, no, feed me just the food that is proper for me to eat. What was happening is, is that they were carrying Israel out and they were feeding them with food that wasn't wasn't, uh, they weren't allowed to eat. They were forcing them to eat unclean food. Daniel had committed that he wouldn't eat that food. He would stay committed to the Lord in a foreign land. But Daniel was one of very few. And so it says, they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. The prophet Ezekiel went to great lengths in chapter 4. You can read that on your own. God had given him a, a, a uh, uh, illustration. He was to prepare food in an unclean way, and he was to eat it. And we, we look at that, and we read that, and we go, what, what, what's going on there? Well, God was, was illustrating through Ezekiel that that's what was going to happen to the nation of Israel. When they strayed away from the Lord, a foreign nation would take them into a land they would no longer be able to practice the customs of, the, of, of Scripture that God had, had put them on, under, including their, their, uh, their eating and their worship. 
to their economy, their land, their, their, their everyday life. But this, when it talks about the eating unclean food, it really talking about their worship is now going to be affected by judgment. And look at verse 4 as it gets more specific. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like mourner's bread to them. All who eat it shall be defied, for their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. He's saying, as they have sinned against God, they will be taken to a place where they will no longer be able to worship in the way that God had set that they should worship. And in fact, even before they were taken to that place, they had begun to sin against God in the ways that they were worshiping. He says, their drink offerings will not be offered. Look at Hosea chapter 3. Well, actually, look at Hosea chapter 8, verse 13. He says, As for my special offerings, they shall sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. They were worshiping. They were still trying to worship God. They were being hypocritical. They're still trying to worship God, but God had not accepted their, their worship. It says, It should be like mourner's bread to them. Mourner's bread was something, um, one of the things that, especially the priests in Israel, they were commanded that they were not to, to make themselves unclean as they came to worship before God. Certain, certain things that would make a person unclean. One thing would make them unclean is being in the presence of a dead body. So even if a person in their family had died, they couldn't participate in that funeral without being unclean. And if they had participated and were unclean, they could not come and perform the service of a priest before the Lord in that unclean state. And so um, that's what they talk about mourner's bread. You can't, you can't come in the presence and make yourself unclean and then come and worship and sacrifice to God in that way. And so this, this, is, this is, is, speaking of, excuse me, is speaking of that. Those who eat it will be defiled. To give you some insight into that, turn to the, the small book of Haggai. You have to find that. Right after Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai. Zechariah, Malachi, right? So, third last book of the Bible. Haggai chapter 2, verse 13. If I give you a test and said, is Haggai a book in the Bible? Would you have passed it? <laughs> All right. Haggai chapter 2, verse 13. Um... Just for fun, let's start with verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches his fold, touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? You see the question? It says, if you got holy meat here, and you touch something, does whatever you touch become holy? What's the answer? Let's look and see. The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with, dead, with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? What's the answer? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Okay, a couple points is made is that if somebody had touched a, a dead body, anything else, they have become unclean in the sight of God, and anything else is unclean. There are certain things that they were to do to cleanse themselves and to, and to be fit for, for worship, but the point is they were unclean. They needed to, to be cleansed from that. But the bigger point that's made here is that you don't become clean with contact with clean things, but you do become unclean with contact with unclean things. That makes sense, doesn't it, right? If I wash my hands and touch you, you're not automatically clean. 
But if I got something nasty on my hand and I touch you, you dirty too, right? That's how it works, right? Holiness is not transferred. But wickedness often is. Just by association, just by rubbing with the wrong thing and the wrong person, you can become unclean. That's the point he makes. But, and so, he, so there are certain rules of, of cleanliness and, and uncleanness, holiness and, and sinfulness, and they, they have violated that is the point that, that he was making. And so something needed to be done. It wasn't going to be automatically clean by them touching something. God had to intervene. Something had to happen there. Their worship, going back to Hosea, their worship now had been impacted by their sin. And so going through some ritual wasn't going to cleanse them. Uh, going through just, just a practice uh, 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 or being around certain people wasn't going to do it. They needed to get right with God. But back to Hosea chapter 9, look at the end of that. Um, verse 4, it shall be like mourners' bread to them, all who eat of it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. When it said their bread shall be for their hunger only, they were, to, they were supposed to be offering their, their bread as a sacrifice to God, but they were just they were just eating it just to be eating it. It kind of reminds me, remember in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul scolded the believers in Corinth because they were coming to the Lord's Supper and they were just stuffing themselves with food. They called it supper and they had a great meal, but they weren't coming to worship. They were just coming to, to gorge themselves with food. And he, 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 he challenged them on doing that. Why are you coming just to eat? Are you coming to actually worship God? The Hosea's passage, he's saying, y'all going through these practices of worship, but God isn't receiving that. All you're doing is eating and getting fat. You're just eating and getting full. You're just going through the motions and you're not truly worshiping God. Because of your sin, God has rejected your worship. It's important for us to understand. When we come before God, we have to come clean. We come before God, we can't just go through the motions. We can't just sing a song or say a prayer. It's our heart that has to be right with God. So as God points out the sin of his people, he's not just talking about their outward action. He's talking about their heart of what they do and, 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 and how they need to get that right. He makes it clear to them. Verse 6 in Hosea 9. For behold, they are going away from destruction. That's an interesting point. He's saying they're trying to run from destruction. In other words, they've heard some of what the prophets said, that, that God is going to judge them. And so what they decided to do is take it on themselves to get away from that judgment. They're going to run from it. But what does God say? Verse 6, for behold, they are going away from destruction, but, when you see that word but, it's going to give you a contrast. What they're trying to do is not going to work. They are going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them, Memphis shall bury them, Nettles shall possess their precious things of silver, thorns shall be in their tents. He's, he's using the three cities in Egypt to talk about how this foreign nation was going to bring them to judgment, even though they were running to that foreign nation to get away from God's judgment. God was using that very nation to judge them. Look at three terms used here. God, he says, Egypt it will gather them, Memphis will bury them, and Nettles will possess their possessions, their precious things of silver. So, so Egypt is going to gather. Egypt is going to collect them. Memphis is going to bury. In other words, destroy them, bring them to destruction, and then take over their possessions. God is announcing the judgment that they are going to face. Another picture given there at the end of verse 6, thorns shall be in their tents. I don't know about you, but I go to sleep at night. I want to get a good rest. 
I don't want stuff in my bed that's going to make me uncomfortable. I want my sheet clean. I want my pillow soft. I want a pillowcase clean, right? <laughs> On Mondays, we have our grandkids over. And we have one room that's a playroom for them. We have another room that is, is, is a guest room that they can play in. And, and uh, we, we have a, a bed that they can actually play on. And so they often get on the bed, and they'll wrestle on the bed and jump on the bed. And they come into our room, and they get on the bed and say, no, no, no. Get off that bed. You got one you can play on, but not this one. See, when I get in the bed, I, I don't want cookie crumbs and popcorn and, and pretzels and all kind of stuff in there. It's the needles in the tins. You know, you go to sleep and you turn, oh, ow! There's something there that shouldn't be there. It's uncomfortable. That's what he's talking about. Verse 7, the days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Notice punishment is a recompense. It is a, it is a payback for what they have done. Didn't know that James Brown preached the gospel, did you? The big payback. <laughs> It is God's payback. It is his giving to them what they deserve. It's recompense for the wrong they have done. In fact, just brings the question, what, what are we to say when we read chapter 9? What are we to see, what are we to, to think about when we see or hear of the judgment of God? It often makes us uncomfortable. But, but what should we be thinking? He says here, the recompense, the days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. In other words, they won't have to guess about what's happening to them. One of the problems we have and the reason why we, we need counsel and we need the word of God, sometimes as believers we go through trials. We go through hardships. We wonder, we often are stricken with guilt and saying, God is paying me back for the wrong that I have done. But when you read the word of God, you realize, no, that, that, that's not really happening. God is just sovereign in the things. He's, he's teaching me some things. But if you're a believer, if you're trusting in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, you fully believe what Scripture says when it says that he has taken my sin and laid it on Jesus. Jesus pays for my sin. The song we sing, Jesus paid it all. On the cross, one of the words he uttered is, it is finished. It's completed. I have done it. I have done what God requires to pay for sin. God does no longer require me to pay for any of my sin. Now, there's consequences of living in a sin-filled world, and those consequences should get us not to be, feel guilty that God is going to suddenly destroy me. What those consequences is, get me to do is to long what Revelation says, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. As long for the day when God will eliminate sin and get us clear out of this sin world and we will live in a place called heaven where there will be no sin. But while we live here, we're often plagued by our own guilt, wondering, is God trying to pay me back? The answer to that, if you're a believer, is no. You just live in a sinful world where you have to trust God for the consequences uh, to, to travel, to navigate through the, 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 the ugly consequences of this sin. He's not paying you back for your sin. If he was paying you back for your sin, you would be destroyed. I would be destroyed. I would face destruction, final destruction. Romans 8 says, there is now therefore no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, no judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. By faith, I have to walk in that. Just because I got treated bad on the job, just because I got bills I can't pay, just because I have sickness and health issues, doesn't mean that God is pouring on me judgment for my sin. 
And so we need to, 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 to recognize what God has done in the Lord Jesus Christ by his grace. What about those who aren't saved? This is just a picture. This is just a taste. This is just an example of the mighty judgment of God. He begins to point that out. He wants people to see that. He's basically saying, you ain't seen nothing yet, and it ain't going to get any better. He wants us to cry out for the grace of God. So he wants believers to do that. He wants unbelievers to do that. To cry out for the grace of God. These people haven't done that. They've, in fact, they've been obstinate. They have been, they have been rebellious. Those who should be pointing them to God have turned them away. Look at verse 7. Here he says, the middle of verse 7, the prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God, yet a fowler's snare is, is on all his ways. He's saying the prophet is supposed to be a watchman, and Ezekiel was an example of that. He says, God has made me a watchman. What is a watchman? One who was to, to look out for danger that was coming and warn the people that danger is coming. That's what the prophets of the Old Testament were to do, to say, look, Israel, you have sinned. God's judgment is on the horizon. It's kind of like a, a meteorologist setting up on a hill and saying, I see a, 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 I see a, 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 a front moving our way, a storm moving our way. Hey, it's going to rain, get inside. Cover yourself up. It's, it's a storm is coming, prepare for it. You know how we react when we know a hurricane is about to, to hit the coast and we, we change our flight plans, don't we? If we're smart, we do. People living in an area board up their houses. They barricade. They use sandbags to, to, to make sure they can secure as much as they can. And then as quickly as they can, they get out of town. A warning has come. Serious danger is on its way, and people need to prepare. That's what the watchman was to do. But here it says, the prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. Prophets were turning against. They were siding with the people. Oh, people don't want to hear that. I see this great front coming, but you know what? That's not really what it looks like. God will never destroy his people. That storm is going to shift and it's going to go somewhere else. Stand, stand tight. Don't run. Don't do anything. Show faith in God that that's not coming this way. God said, you're a fool. You're a fool. I've given you warning, and you won't properly warn the people. Tell them what's right. Recently, I heard of a man who had, he was a preacher in a large church in a large city, but he had a revelation from God that caused him no longer to believe in hell. And so he wanted to, to share, and, and guess what? You, you know it. All the talk show, all, all, the, all the shows that, 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 that interview him, they would interview him and talk to him and, oh, how, how gracious you are, how loving you are, how you have seen the light. Because he no longer was a hail and fire and brimstone type preacher. He said that what he had seen from the word of God is not in character with a God of hell and judgment. This applies. You are a fool. You are a fool who no longer is an adequate watchman. Just because you don't like devastations that, hor uh, that, that hurricanes bring don't mean you need to change the forecast. Tell the people what God is going to do if they don't turn from their sin. That's an act of love. Why does God even give warning? To show how mean and nasty he is? No, so people are running high. So the storm won't devastate them. He gives a warning. He is righteous and he will deal with and judge sin. And because of that righteousness, he has very little 
little room or taste for those who won't speak the truth. So he says, the prophet is a fool. The man of spirit is mad because of the great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is a watchman of Ephraim with my God, yet a fowler snares on all his ways and hatred in the house of God. Verse 9, they have deeply corrupt themselves as in the days of Gibeah. What is he talking about here? As in the days of Gibeah. There's a couple places that are listed here that would give us warning um, from God. The first one is in verse 9, is Gibeah. The second one is in verse 10, Baal Peor. Some things that happened at these locations that we need to give mention to. Baal Peor. I'm looking for my notes and I didn't write them down here, so I'm going to have to go and see if I can find it. I'll have to look that up later. These three, these two areas that we talked about, Gibeah was a place where corruption had taken place in Israel's history. And I want to share that with you, but I don't have it written in my notes. Um, and Baal Peor is another one that was written in Israel's history where they had corrupted themselves and gone against the Lord. And God is saying to them, these areas, these places where you have sinned, I have, I am judging you for. Where you've gone against me, you have worshipped idols, you have sacrificed to, to, to idols, you've gone against my word, and judgment is sure to come because of your sin. Gilgal is the other one. Let's start with Gilgal, verse 15. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them. Because of the wickedness of the deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I remember now, in verse 6, he uses the term Gibeah. In, in Judges, at the end of Judges, I believe it's Judges chapter 20 or so, there's a strange story of a Levite. You remember Judges gives this picture of this is how Israel operated when there was no king in the land. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. At the end of Judges, I believe chapter 20 or so, there was, was that, you see 19, there was a Levite who, who went away and traveled to a, a place. And what was happening, he had a concubine who had left him and went back home to her dad. And the Levite went to this, his father-in-law's home to, to be reconciled with his concubine. She was there for about four months. And um, he went back and he met with the dad. He met with her. He's going to be reconciled. And now that they were reconciled, he was going to go take her back to live with him. The dad said, hey, well, why are you here? Why don't you stay for breakfast? And so he said, okay, I'll stay for breakfast. And then after breakfast, he's ready to go. Dad said, well, you might as well spend the night. And he stayed the night. And then next day, same thing. Why don't you stay for breakfast? Eat a little bit before you leave. And, and uh, he stayed, he ate. And he said, why don't you stay the night? He stayed the night. That happened for like four days. And then after he said, look, we got to go. And so they left. They went. Now, as they were traveling back to his country on the outskirts of Ephraim, is, is where his country, his hometown was, they traveled through. They, they would not go through Jabus was the city, and it is the city that now is Jerusalem. At that time, Israel had not captured it, so it was not in Israel land. So they wanted to go around Jerusalem, and they were headed back to their country. They went through a territory of Israel that was called Gibeah. The inhabitants of Gibeah were Benjaminites of the tribe of Israel. And they looked for a place to stay. They were in the city of Gibeah, and nobody would take them in. 
So they were in the town square. That's kind of where you hung out, waiting for people to, you know, give you a place, find a hotel, so to speak. Nobody would give them a place to stay. There was an old man who wasn't even from that area who asked, hey, what you doing here? Why are you hanging out in the square? This ain't a good place to be. And so he, um, he took them in to his place. He knew the people of that day were evil. This is a story that sounds very much like what happened in, in Genesis with Abraham and with Lot. The men of that city charged that man in his house and demanded to have the guest man that, that, that was staying there, the guest, the Levite, they wanted him. They wanted to sexually abuse him. That's how wicked this city was. The man, the old man says, please don't do this. This is a terrible wickedness. And he, he turned them away. But what they ended up doing is he gave his daughters and he gave the concubine to these men. And they abused and killed the concubine. The man took his concubine back home with him. The Bible says he cut her in 12 pieces and sent her throughout Israel to give them the message of the wickedness that had been done. This is a picture of how evil and how wicked Israel was. But it doesn't stop there. The reason why it's an evil picture is because the people who did this were Israelites. And so the man had sent a message to all of Israel. The Levite had sent his message saying, this cannot be tolerated in Israel. And sure enough, Israel came to his defense and they fought against it. This is what shows the wickedness is that they, the people of Israel said, we're going to destroy this tribe because the tribe of Benjamin took up for this group of people who committed this wicked sin, and they fought for them. That's what showed the wickedness of this city. When we, when we began to justify and protect evildoers and those who are, 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 are just sinners, uh, perverse sinners in every way, and to fight for them, it shows the wickedness of that city. God later destroyed that city. And so he's saying to Israel, your wickedness is like the wickedness that was displayed in Gibeah. That's like saying Sodom and Gomorrah. It's saying you have an extreme wickedness. God is allowing his people to see why he's bringing judgment on them. They should have been a nation of priests and kings. They should have been a nation that is a testimony to the nations around them. Instead, they were acting just like the sinful nations around them, and God is judging them for that. So Gibeah is the one name or the one place that they're reminded of in verse 9. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah, and he will remember their iniquity, he will punish their sins. Let me close out with this. As I mentioned before, what are we to say when we see or hear of the judgment of God? First of all, we can and should say amen. What do I mean by that? We should say amen because the consequences of sin cannot be negotiated or avoided. God is showing that he will, in fact, deal with sin. In this world, we don't always see that. In fact, we, we seldom see it. We see corrupted justice in this world. God says he hasn't looked the other way. He hasn't forgotten. He will deal and judge with sin. He will judge all sin. We can also say amen to the gospel. Because the gospel message is that God is a righteous God. And the wrath of God is being poured out against all sin. Look in Romans chapter 1, very, very briefly with me. Romans chapter 1. You know, we sigh and we sorrow and we agonize because of sin. We are looking for righteousness to come, for righteousness to prevail. 
in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God's salvation for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And he goes through all these verses to show how the wrath of God is revealed. I want to point out to you that the, that the gospel includes, yes, the righteousness of God and the wrath of God. The gospel is the good news and the truth that God will judge sin and the good news is that he judges sin in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ for all those who are willing to put their faith and trust in him. That means that my sin is judged as well, but that the reason that's good news is judged not in me in spending eternity in hell. It's judged in my sin being placed on Jesus and Jesus taking my sin and burying it on the cross and making a full payment for it where God can look at me and say, your sin is paid for because of what Jesus has done and because you have trusted Christ as your Savior. So I can say amen to the righteousness of God that is revealed through his wrath, through his judgment that's revealed. It's just that his wrath is placed on his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as I look at Hosea 9, I should be reminded that God does, in fact, deal with and judge sin. He punishes and he removes sin. He won't put up with sin for long. We won't have to deal with sin forever. That's the thing I agonize over. You go home today. You will have to turn on and off alarms. You will have to lock and unlock doors. You will have to secure your possessions. You will have to guard where you go and who may be following you. You will have to watch out because of sin everywhere. God is going to deal with that sin and give us an environment where sin will be totally eliminated because it's going to be dealt with and paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ. So in chapter 9, he's showing that, that the consequences of sin can't be negotiated or avoided. But we can escape these consequences only through the cross. When we see the judgment of God, our hearts should be crying out for God's grace, and that grace is shown in and only through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, when we see the judgment of God, we should be saying, God, you are just in your judgment. Oftentimes we get uncomfortable and say, wow, is that really deserved? The answer is yes, it is deserved. The judgment of God is consistent with the righteousness of God that will judge all sin. The, judge, the judgment of God is also consistent with the grace of God that says your sin and my sin is judged in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we say hallelujah to. See, God doesn't abandon his judgment to save us. In fact, he takes judgment that was due to us and puts it on the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So when we see and we hear of the judgment of God, we ought to be saying amen and hallelujah because God will deal with sin, all sin, and we long for that time when that dealing is completed. We glory that we have escaped through the Lord Jesus Christ that judgment, even though we deserve it, that God has placed it on Jesus. So 
bottom line is we point to Jesus and we worship and we glorify him. He is the payment for our sin. He is our righteousness. He is why we don't have to fear the judgment of God. And in fact, we look forward to God's judgment, God's justice, God's righteousness. Father, we pray that as you speak to hearts today who naturally would be or should be in fear of your judgment, we pray that you appoint them to the Lord Jesus Christ as the only payment for sin, that we might rest in him, we might trust completely in him and in him alone, that we would look forward to your judgment, we would realize how awesome it is that you deal with sin. You don't cover it up. You don't forget it. But you give right, proper, adequate, and full consequences and judgment for sin. We thank you most of all, Lord, that that judgment has been settled by you to be satisfied on the cross where Jesus paid for the sin of all who would trust in him. We pray, Lord, that more and more would be drawn to and cry out for the cross, for the grace of God that comes in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we will glory in it. We will see it. We will see its beauty. We will see its grace. We would hide ourselves in it and find cover in the cross. We would worship with true worship the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. We thank you in Jesus' name.